So today we're starting a new class entitled, Are Possibilities Possible? Which will be a look into the nature of the future. This is a topic I'm guessing most Christians rarely, if ever, think about. Most people have just heard certain things or have been told certain things about the future and haven't questioned them. There are a few different issues I've always had with the classical mainstream uh, Christian view on this topic and their implications. And I really struggle with understanding the way God uh, interacts with his creation. I believe with all of my heart, mind, and soul that God is sovereign over all of his creation and that he is perfect in his nature, his character, and everything well, about everything. I mentioned I believe this with all my heart, mind, and soul. That's the thing. It's really hard for me personally to believe something in my heart unless my, I guess my mind and my soul, if they're not all in. For me, that comes with squaring what I feel in my gut, what I understand mentally through science, and then what I read and study through scripture. When there's a discontinuity between all these things as a whole, I feel like something's just off, and there must be something I'm not understanding properly. That's how I've always felt about the future and God's interactions with creation until I came across a certain interpretation of the universe and of scripture that I'd like to present for your consideration in this class. It's, it's important first and foremost to point out and emphasize that this topic is not a salvation issue. There are many God-fearing, Bible-believing, Jesus-following Christians that do not come to the same conclusions when they humbly, honestly, and genuinely attempt to interpret the Bible to the best of their ability. We should all still love one another and remain united in brotherly and sisterly fellowship as we're all trying to be Jesus' disciples and bring honor, praise, worship, and glory to God. I will do my best to accurately portray several different views and then explain why each one doesn't quite make sense to me. And then I'll put up for your consideration what I believe to be the best interpretation and worldview that makes the most sense of philosophy, theology, science, and scripture. It is my hope for us to enter into this study with compassion and grace. Not everyone will agree with everyone else. And We'll all have different varying degrees of opinions, beliefs, and views, and that's okay. Some may be convinced and agree with my interpretation, and others will be wrong. But we will still love and respect you. My aim is to gain a deeper understanding of God's Word and to strengthen our relationship with Him. So although I've read many books and articles and essays and watched even more videos of sermons and blogs and debates in preparation for this class, the source I'll be using the most is Greg Boyd and his books, God at War, Satan, the Problem of Evil, and God of the Possible. These are all excellent books and I highly recommend them. It was actually this first book, God at War, that brought me down the path I'm on today and was instrumental in strengthening my faith. It and its sequel, Satan, the Problem of Evil, are incredibly thorough and contain a wealth of information and knowledge. But if you're interested in a shorter book, to get more information about the topic I'll be discussing in this class, I'd recommend God of the Possible. It's a little easier to read and gives a broader overview. So let's go ahead and get to it. In order to provide some background and a foundation, I'm going to first discuss the logical dilemma that is known as the problem of evil. In this first lesson, I'm going to provide primarily a philosophical and theological responses and views as I work towards presenting my view to you. 
Then in subsequent lessons, we'll get more in depth in scripture to see what God has told us on the subject. So the first occurrence of the problem of evil being discussed was by a Greek philosopher Epicurus three or four centuries before Jesus. This argument is a type of logic that starts with the initial statement or hypothesis, and then there are several premise statements that all lead to a logical conclusion statement. For the problem of evil, the initial statement is, if God exists, he is omniscient, all-knowing, omnipotent, all-powerful, and omnibenevolent, all-good. This is followed by four premise statements. Premise one, if God's omniscient, then God would know about and how to prevent all evil. Premise two, if God is omnipotent, then God has the ability to prevent any and all evil. Premise three, if God is omnibenevolent, then God would want to prevent all evil. And premise four, evil exists in the world. All this leads to the conclusion, God must not exist. If all premises are correct, then the conclusion must be correct. Several groups have tried to argue that one or more of these premises are false. First, premise one and two are false. Dualism believes in two equal but opposite gods, one good and one evil. Neither God is all-powerful or all-knowing, and neither is able to exist without the other. These two gods are battling for humans to choose their side. The problem with this view is that its gods are foreign to and contradict the God of Scripture because there's only one God and he has no rival. The next view believes that premise three is false. Deism is the belief in a non-personal God that created the universe then is silent and distant. This God is passive and neither good nor evil. God isn't active and doesn't care about the goings-on with the created universe. Things are set in motion and then will eventually run its designated course. The problems here are also that this God is foreign to and contradicts the God of Scripture because God is, is involved with his creation and he does care about what happens in, inside of it. The next view states that premise four is false. Evil is not a real thing, but the absence of goodness. This is the view of Augustine, who we'll be discussing here in a few minutes. This view says that we define cold through the absence of heat and darkness through the absence of light, so evil is just the absence of goodness. I believe that the problem here is that simply saying that evil is the absence of goodness doesn't explain the amount of evil that exists in the world or distinguish between the two types of evil, moral and natural evil. Moral evil is evil that is caused and results from a conscious being, whereas natural evil results from so-called natural causes like earthquakes and storms and also includes all the pain and suffering in the world. This brings us to the term theodicy. A theodicy is a way of showing that the existence of evil does not rule out the existence of God. There are many different theodicies, but I'm going to address the most common ones. First, the logical impossibility theodicy. This view states that God is unable to prevent or remove evil. God's all-powerful, but it's logically impossible for evil not to exist. Either God and evil both exist, or neither exists. 
the problem I see here is that this view leans towards dualism and therefore doesn't agree with scripture. Next is the higher good theodicy, also called the blueprint worldview. This says that God has a good reason for allowing evil to exist within his creation. There's a specific, good, divine reason behind each and every event that takes place. History is just working out a meticulously divine blueprint. So every evil could have been prevented if God wanted to will it. And since all that God wills is good, it must be good that evil is not, pre not prevented. In other words, every evil is part of God's ultimate plan. The problems I see with this view are that it just ignores the problem of evil and makes no attempt to reconcile the logical uh, inconsistencies. And this view is typically deterministic. Uh, we'll address determinism, also called Calvinism, a little bit later in this, course, in, this in this lesson. So next is the Augustinian theodicy, named after the early church theologian Augustine, who lived from 354 to 430 AD. He thinks that if God is perfect and God created the world, then the world and all creations within it must also be perfect. Therefore, evil cannot exist as something created by God. Evil is the absence, lack, or privation of good. Another term for this is a Latin phrase, privatio boni. He uses the mosaic analogy. A mosaic, when viewed from a distance, is completely good and very beautiful. If looking at an individual dark tile, though, it appears to be ugly, but it's necessary in order to make the whole picture more beautiful. This view also states that disobedience and sin created evil within humanity. This is his doctrine of original sin. Both moral and natural evil is the result. So all evil is either sin or the punishment for sin. I have several problems with this view as well. People are not tiles or paint. To create and force a sentient being to suffer through a nightmare just for the good of the whole, to me, seems to be immoral. Second, a perfect world can't become or create evil. It's a logical contradiction. Perfect beings can't choose to be anything other than be perfect. And this view doesn't fit with science and history because the world is chaotic and not perfect. Finally, calling, a calling evil a privation and not real is trying to use semantics and doesn't really explain all the suffering from evil. The next view is called the Irena Irenaean Theodicy, named after Irenaeus, who lived from 130 to 200 AD. He argues that creation occurs in two stages in Genesis 1, verse 26. First, humans are created in the image of God, making them intelligent, conscious, and moral beings. Then humans must grow into the likeness of God and develop our moral natures to be like God. Humans are not created perfect, but have the ability to become perfect over time. Morality that is developed through hard work, he states, is more valuable because being created perfect would have created mindless tools or what we would call robots. He believes that evil exists to help develop our characters our character through pain and suffering. He says that admirable character traits are only possible in an imperfect world. One develops either compassion or causes pain, is generous, creates poverty. 
exhibit selflessness or corruption. He says God deliberately makes his existence uncertain. If we knew for certain that God was watching, we'd change our character out of fear rather than moral virtue. He goes on to say that natural evil in the form of storms and earthquakes exists to limit human lifespans. It prevents older generations from dominating younger ones and gives added responsibilities to younger individuals. It also limits the amount and duration of suffering one individual must face. Then natural evil in the form of pain and suffering exists to make us better. It provides notification of an injury or illness, as is the case of leprosy, for example. And then pain and suffering provide correction by teaching us what we are doing wrong, as well as remedial punishment for our sins. Algernon Swinburg is quoted as saying, without suffering, the world would be like a toy and inconsequential. The final aspect of this view is that it believes that everyone must make it to heaven to justify all of the pain and suffering and argues for universalism. Problems with this view include the fact that the end does not justify the means. Why would God purposely create evil just so humans can develop virtues? Also, all suffering doesn't lead to moral growth. Some criminals blame their activity on previous suffering. And suffering is not the only way to create moral growth. For example, reading scripture or participating in a team sport. My final issue with Irenaean theodicy is that universalism doesn't fit with all of scripture or reflect justice and consequences for a life full of sin and being outside of Christ. Probably the most common view is the free will theodicy. In this view, God maximized the goodness in the world by creating free beings. Freedom means that we have the choice to either love and obey God or not, which results in a world with evil. Humans must genuinely be free to choose how to respond to God. We must have the ability to choose either courage or cowardice, fairness or to be unfair, to show mercy or to be cruel. My variant on this view is called the Warfare Worldview Theodicy. Um, I'll explain this view and actually in a future lesson because first, there's a problem with this main view in that the classical definition of God's omniscience may conflict with genuine libertarian free will. So that brings us to the topic of omniscience. The dictionary defines this as the state of knowing all things. In classical theology, it's defined as God perfectly knowing everything that has ever happened, everything that is happening now, and everything that will ever happen in the future. How or why God knows everything is further divided into two camps. First, God preordained or determined everything out of his own will before the creation of the universe. This view is sometimes called Calvinism, as it was championed by John Calvin during the mid-16th century. Most determinists do not believe in free will. The other camp is that instead of predetermining everything, God, before the creation of the universe, had complete exhaustive foreknowledge of everything that will ever happen. This view is championed by Jacobus Arminius in the mid-16th century and is sometimes called Arminianism. Unlike determinists, 
most adherents of Arminianism believe in free will, which leads us to the logical problem with determinism and foreknowledge. So the initial statement is, if we have free will, we are able to make a choice about our present actions. Sound good? The following is a logical flow for predetermination. One, God chose before the creation of the world that our present actions would occur. Two, there's nothing we can now do to change the fact that God chose before the creation of the world that our present actions would occur. Three, God's choices cannot be incorrect. Four, there's nothing we can now do to change the fact that God's choices cannot be incorrect. So five, it must be the case that if God chose before the creation of the world that our present actions would occur, and God's choices cannot be incorrect, then our present actions must occur. Therefore, since there is nothing we can now do to change the fact that our present actions must occur, we don't have free will. If God foreordained or predetermined all things, humans cannot have genuine free will. If everything was predetermined, all sin and evil in the world was determined by God. This would mean that God is at fault in some fashion for the existence and the effects of evil. Determinists typically agree with this statement, but argue for the greater good theodicy we talked about earlier. Some determinists, however, do not believe evil exists. That's the privatio boni we mentioned previously. So now let's look at the same logical flow, but this time as it relates to foreknowledge. We start with the in same initial statement. If we have free will, we are able to make a choice about our present actions. One, God knew before the creation of the world that our present actions would occur. Two, there is nothing we can now do to change the fact that God knew before the creation of the world that our present actions would occur. Three, God's knowledge cannot be incorrect. Four, there is nothing we can now do to change the fact that God's knowledge cannot be incorrect. So five, it must be the case that if God knew before the creation of the world that our present actions would occur and God's knowledge cannot be incorrect, then our present actions must occur. So we get the same conclusion. Since there is nothing we can now do to change the fact that our present actions must occur, we do not have genuine libertarian free will. If everything was foreknown by God, humans cannot have free will. So all sin and evil in the world was foreknown by God. God isn't at fault, but culpable due to this knowledge and not stopping it. Even in secular society, there's laws against this kind of thing. First, there's misprising of a felony and being an accessory before the fact. However, most who believe in exhaustive foreknowledge still believe in free will and do not consider God culpable. So let's examine some possible responses to this logical flow. The first, there's the compatibilist view. This is a view that believes that divine foreknowledge and free will are compatible. There are four attempted solutions using the compatibilist solution, the compatibilist view. Compatibilist solution one originated with Bothius around the turn of the sixth century. It appeals to the eternity or timelessness of God to answer the foreknowledge problem. 
This view states that if God is timeless, it's not foreknowledge, it's divine knowledge in his eternal present now. It alleges that since God's knowledge does not happen in sequence with our actions, then we would still have free will. There are several objections or problems with the solution. First, how can it be that events occurring in time are simultaneously present to God if he is in an eternal now? How could a timeless being know a changing world? And if God is timeless, how can God interact with temporal creatures like us, reacting and responding to what we do as God often does in the Bible? We'll examine the idea of God being outside of time a little later in tonight's lesson. The second compatible solution is from William of Ockham, who lived from 1285 to 1347 and appeals to the existence of two types of facts. Hard facts pertain only to the past. For example, the Declaration of Independence was signed in 1776. This type of fact is fixed and unchangeable in the past. Soft facts pertain partly to the past and partly to the future, probably with the future. For example, Declaration of Independence was signed in 1776, which was 247 years before this class ends. This view states that only hard facts are fixed and God's beliefs are soft facts and changeable. Objections and problems with this solution are that things in the future, the th things that happen in the future do not affect whether or not God had knowledge or a belief about it in the past. Also, what makes a fact about a past soft? Since God is perfect and therefore never wrong, any belief he must have must also be true, fixed, and unchangeable, whether it's about the past, present, or the future. Compatible solution number three is Molinism. This view is started by the Spanish theologian Luis de Molina in the late 16th century. The unique aspect of this view is the idea of God having what's called middle knowledge. God knows what all free agents would do in any given situation, including what's called counterfactuals, which is information that may or may not exist in the real world. For an example, if John experiences the specific, the specific circumstances XYZ, then he would freely choose to do A. However, if John experienced the specific circumstances LMN, he would freely choose to do B. God knows all possible circumstances in which all possible situations would exist. Therefore, before creation, this view states, God determines and selects all circumstances in order to bring about the necessary situations where humans would freely choose the things in the way God wants them to occur. This view states that God doesn't cause our free will actions, but he guarantees them by orchestrating all circumstances in light of his middle knowledge. Now for the objections or problems with the solution. It doesn't address how God's foreknowledge and free will are compatible. It just assumes they're compatible without giving any explanations or reasons of how the logical flow is incorrect. And if before the creation of the world, God preselects and engineers all circumstances in order to bring about and ensure that we act a certain way, then ultimately this is no different than determinism. Therefore, it does not eliminate the problem of evil. 
The last compatible solution is called dependence. This view believes that you have a choice about what God knows in the past. God's past knowledge is dependent on your free actions and not the other way around. The glaring objection or problem with this solution is that it maintains that we have the power to alter the past, but the past is fixed and unchangeable because it's in a definite, re a definite reality of the past and it cannot be changed. So those were the compatibilist solutions. The other type of response is called the incompatibilist view, which says that divine foreknowledge and free will are not compatible. There are three solutions using this view. First is semi-compatibilism. This view states that free will does not require alternative possibilities. A person can be morally responsible even if they had no other choice. Semi-compatibilists accept that there is no free will, but since the human is the source of the action, they say that they are, the ultimate, are ultimately culpable. The objections or problems with this solution are, one, it's a logical contradiction. The ultimate cause of something is also responsible for it. For example, if I have a remote control car and I crash it into you, are you going to blame the car or are you going to blame me? The other problem with the solution is that it does not solve the problem of evil. <coughs> the second incompatible solution is referred to as free will skepticism. More a position than a solution, this view simply states that humans don't have free will. All actions are predetermined by God. The objections and problems with this solution are that it accepts that humans are not morally responsible agents. Therefore, we must change the traditional view of sin if God determines it, and it does not answer the problem of evil. The final incompatible solution is called open theism, which we'll be discussing in detail next week. But first, I'd like to address the question we brought up earlier. Is God outside of time? Questions thought so far? Yes. Okay. Uh, you know, uh, Gary Stevenson made an excellent example, and he says, uh, he, he told us in class one time, he said, God's not limited by time. We're limited by time, but God's not limited by time, because we can only see linear. God sees more than linear. If you look at the, uh, uh, the spokes in a wheel, say, or, or the balusters in a, uh, in a stairway, we see only one opening at a time where God sees it all. Interesting perspective. Before we begin this part of the discussion, I think it's important to remind everyone to always be a pilgrim in theology. Always keep an open mind and be on a journey. I'm not in the same place and I don't believe the same things that I did a decade ago. We should all be willing to allow the Spirit to guide us in maybe a different direction than we anticipated. That being said, let's get to it. I believe that time is not something that was created, but is an attribute of existence. Time is required for any being to experience sequential events and duration. God has no beginning and no end, so he's experienced time with an infinite duration. Or as scripture says, God is from everlasting to everlasting. A timeline is a visual representation of existence. 
if we look at God's timeline, some people would envision this, where it goes from infinity past to infinity future. No beginning, no end. However, this may be correct in terms of overall existence, but what about God's now? Since the future is not a thing yet, meaning it hasn't happened yet and is therefore not actualized into existence, I believe God's current timeline looks more like this. God has existed from all eternity past through the current time. His timeline is also constantly growing as time passes, and it will continue to grow forever. One thing that's important to note is that eternity is not the absence of time, but merely a sequential reference of unending duration. It was actually a Greek idea from Plato that described eternity as being without time. So did God create time? If God created time, when did this happen? The mere act of creating something requires time. There's a cause and an effect. The idea of something passing from non-existence into existence uh, means it happens in a sequential activity. Time is a precondition for creating. Again, time's not a thing that is created. It's just an aspect of existence that describes sequence and duration. God has always existed, so he's always experienced what we would call time, meaning God has always experienced duration and sequence. Even the secular BBC show Before the Big Bang begins with a statement acknowledging the notion that time coming into existence, quote, may be a logical contradiction, end quote. Genesis 1 refers to the creation of the measurement of time. On day one, God created a way to differentiate the times of day as well as determining the length of a day. God called the light day and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. So a complete day is comprised of a period of light and a period of darkness. Then on day four, God created additional ways to mark and measure time. God assigned the purpose of the sun, moon, and stars. Let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. So the celestial objects are to be used to measure time in a way that's meaningful to humanity. Time is not a container that can restrict God by being inside of it, as some people believe. Some Christians are afraid of God experiencing time because they believe it restricts him and causes him to change. There are two main theories on time, and they have highly scientific and unique, unique names. A theory, B theory. <laughs> the A theory of time is what I'm proposing where there's a real passage of time in a sequential flow. This happens first, then that, then that, then that, and so on. This view is also called the dynamic view of time. The other type of thought is called the B theory, also called the static or block theory. In this view, time is tenseless, meaning there's no distinction between past, present, and future. Time, and thus all of existence, is like this big block that God is outside of, and he sees everything simultaneously. This view states that the flow of time is only a subjective illusion of human consciousness and not real. However, interactions with humanity requires time. Some critics say that God can enter and exit time as he wishes from outside of this time block. 
but the act of entering or exiting the block of time would require time to accomplish. If God's outside of time, he would not be able to enter or exit the timeless 4D block of the universe as that would require a change. And all change is a sequential activity. There's a before and an after said change. If God is outside of time, then there would be no such thing as now. God would see our yesterday, our today, and our tomorrow simultaneously, which means that the universe would have to be fixed and determined. There could be no free will. If God is able to see this entire universe block at the same time, then in our today, we can't make a genuine decision that would alter what God sees in our tomorrow because he would already see it in his eternal and timeless now. An analogy would be similar to us viewing a two-dimensional object with a temporal component like a movie. We're able to move and skip around to different parts of the movie, but we're in time to be able to accomplish this, but we aren't able to make changes to the movie. I don't think this accurately describes God or reality. Now let's consider another reason I don't think this is true. The incarnation is an example of how God must be in time and changeable. In John 1, 1 and the first part of verse 14, God was eternally changed when he became flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Another example is in Romans 8, 3, where God sent his Son in the likeness of human flesh, or sinful flesh, excuse me. I've used a couple passages here to show that the Son became flesh because some proponents of the block theory of time state that God never became human. I think everyone here, I hope, I think, is in agreement that God did in fact become a man, so I'm not going to give further examples, though there are dozens in the Bible. So the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, was previously only referred to as the Son of God, the Word, or the Angel of the Lord, but after the incarnation he, be incarnation, he became the Son of Man as well. This is first stated in Mark 2, verse 10. But I, Jesus, want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. This was the earliest occurrence of Jesus referring to himself as the Son of Man in the New Testament, assuming, of course, that Mark was the first gospel written. And it was also his favorite term for himself that he used the most throughout the Gospels. It's important to note also that Jesus is still a man today. In 1 Timothy 2, verses 5 through 6 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. So God was changed. Before the first advent and incarnation, God only had one nature, divine only. And afterwards, God became and remains two natures, divine and human in Jesus. Furthermore, let's look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 45 through 49. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. 
And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. This means that after our resurrection, we will have bodies that are just like Jesus' body is now. If God is outside of time and just entered or exited time as, as he wanted, the incarnation isn't possible. So, is God timeless in an eternal now, without sequence or succession, without duration, outside of time or atemporal, is only, not was or will be, without past, without future? Well, in Greek philosophy, yes. All of these descriptions are from Plato. Augustine once admitted to reading scripture through the eyes of Plato. In the Confessions of St. Augustine, he says, quote, So now I seized greedily upon the adorable writings of your spirit, and especially upon the Apostle Paul. And I found that those difficulties in which it had once seemed to me that he contradicted himself, and that the text of his discourse did not agree with the testimonies of the law and the prophets, vanished away. In that pure eloquence I saw one face, and I learned to rejoice with trembling. I found that whatever truth I had read in the Platonists was said here with praise of your grace." Now there are many descriptions of God that are in Scripture. Genesis 21:33, Lord, the eternal God. First Chronicles 16:36, from everlasting to everlasting. Psalm 55:19, from of old. Psalm 100, verse 5, continues through all generations. Psalm 102, 27, your years will never end. Psalm 146, verse 6, he remains faithful forever. Isaiah 9, 6, everlasting Father. Isaiah 9, 7, from that time on and forever. Isaiah 46, 10, from ancient times. Isaiah 57.15, He who lives forever. Jeremiah 10.10, The living God, the eternal King. Lamentation 5.10, I'm sorry, 5.19, You, Lord, reign forever. Daniel 4.34, Him who lives forever. Daniel 7.9, The ancient of days. Micah 5.2, Whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Romans 1, 23, immortal. 1 Timothy 6, 15, God will bring about in his own time. Hebrews 7, 25, always lives. Jude 25, Jesus Christ our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Revelation 1, 4, him who is and who was and who is to come. You notice that none of these mean timelessness or outside of time. They all refer to an unending duration. At this point, we have enough context and are ready to discuss and consider the view that I'm proposing in our topic for next week, open theism. Did you have any more, any other any comments or questions so far? I don't think that that we have the capability to truly 
understand where God relates to time. I think it's Schrodinger's cat. Okay. Do you think it's possible that God is inside of time, like I'm proposing, is kind of the question I'm asking. Is there a possibility that God exists in time? I believe it, it, that he does only because, especially the incarnation, if God changed, there has to be a sequential change. If that time has to, He has to be in time to be able to have a change. That's why a lot of proponents of that block theory, that, like, like Gary Stevenson believes that God sees all of time and all the universe simultaneously, and you mentioned the spokes and the wheel, that would mean that the earth has to be static. The universe, because if you took a movie to see all of it at one time, it's like taking a still frame of every frame of the movie and laying it all out in front of you. Excuse me, yes, you can see the entire thing all at once, but it doesn't change, it's static. What if it changes? How can it? Because that would be a change in time. Sure would be. But if it changed, therefore you'd be in time to see it change. But you can apply it yourself. If you're God, you can apply yourself at any point and change time. We're trying to see something that's unimaginable to us, mm -hmm. and we're linear. God is more than linear. He is, you know, it's it's hard to explain it. Uh, we had a cadet, uh, we sponsored a cadet that went out on her first flight and was given the controls, and she moved from a two-dimensional world to a three-dimensional world. She said the freedom of that I had never I never experienced before. We haven't experienced time as God has. All we see is a linear point. We're still living in like a two-dimensional mm -hmm. world. We've yet to see, be out there where God is. So I can understand where you're coming from, but but once again, time is like Schrodinger's cat. Okay. Do we open the box or not? We can't open it yet, but there will be a day that we can. And like I said, many of us will disagree with everyone else, so I appreciate your comment. Eddie? Making sure I understand your flow of thought. The main big picture is the problem of evil, am I right? So how does a good, all-loving, all-wise, all-knowing, all-powerful God exist simultaneously with evil? That's a great question to struggle with. How come children are starving now? Mm -hmm. How come tornadoes are killing people? And God is all that. And one of those answers is, well, one of them is free will. Somehow you're saying, well, so I'm trying to figure out how this discussion about a God outside of time is connecting, if, if that's your larger this I'm trying to portion, this sets the stage for what I'm going to discuss next week, open theism. And then that will be a part that we'll discuss in the third lesson of this, of this class, talking about my viewpoint called the... Uh, the warfare worldview, the Odyssey. All of the everything leads into the next one. And so in order to understand my viewpoint called the warfare worldview, which takes free will, omniscience, time, spiritual warfare, all of that together, you first need to understand, I believe, open theism. In order to first understand open theism, we need to first understand time, omniscience, problem of evil, etc. So this class, my intention was to set the stage as an introduction to the course. And then next week, we'll kind of get more into the, as they say, the meat and potatoes. And kind of what I'll actually present what my view is, and I'm going to put up for your consideration and give what I believe to be background points to Which it. Which is a response to the problem. Which is a response to the nature of reality and existence, and how God interacts with creation. 
Yes. You want to add to your list of scriptures. Uh huh. Exodus three fourteen. Okay. As God said to Moses, I am who I am. Mm -hmm. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Mm -hmm. Which that gives the existence of, doesn't matter where you are in history, God. Right. God will always exist. He is. Agreed. Thank you. Any other thoughts, comments, questions, complaints, anything? Yes, Tim. So I, I, I want to caveat first by saying that I, I don't know that I have a whole lot of definitive thoughts. I'm working my way through this and really teaching it. Um, but, but one thing I, I will throw out is you said your problem with God being outside of time mm -hmm. or one of the two problems was with the information. Correct. That God was, God was changed. And, while I, I can see where you're coming from, I don't have a problem reconciling that in my mind because God is three in one, and we're talking about one part of God that was changed to become mortal. Well, in my human and divine, but in the in the human world, with you know, bound by the the, the bounds of time. So in my view, Jesus is fully human as a man, but he's also fully divine. We don't, I, I say we, I've never heard a good explanation for the Trinity or how the nature of God being Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, yet only one God, but in three natures, it blow, blows my mind. You know water. Well, that's two different states. That's not the same thing. Ice, water, and steam is not all... It's they're water, the but they're not all coexisting at the same time. But we see them in different... But they're not coexisting simultaneously. Scott, you're a son. Mm -hmm. You're a man. To, uh -huh. You're a father. Right. All of those three existing constantly at all the same They are descriptions of my nature, of my character, not who I am. As a father, that's who you are. That is As one response. As son, that's who you are. It identifies you. That's the way I... Okay. I've heard a lot of those different explanations, and I don't like any of them. They may be true. I don't know. I will first admit that I do not know. I have no idea. I just believe it. And I know that God said it, and it has to be true. I've not found, I've not found anything to disprove it. Therefore, I still believe it. So, Scott, then, are, are you suggesting, then, that with that your view of the Trinity, I'm not trying to accuse No worries. Are you, are you trying to suggest that your view of the Trinity is when God became man in the form of Jesus, that, how do I even ask this question, that he embodied the Trinity? Jesus, as God, as a second person of the Godhead, however you want to word it, has always existed. At some point, at the incarnation, at the advent, Jesus became man as well. Jesus, the second person in the Trinity, became not only fully divine, but also fully human. Today, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who is God, is still two natures, human and divine today, I believe. And I believe scripture tells us that. And so therefore I say God 
is two natures today where, let's say, 3,000 years ago he was not. 3,000 years ago, before the Advent and Incarnation, God was only, all three natures, aspects, persons, what do you want to call it, all three parts of the triune God figurehead were all divine only. And now there's also humanity. That's why I think that, and because God is, God I am, God, I believe, because of that, is, in my opinion, the strongest argument to say that God is within time because, again, I think time is just duration and sequence. It's not a thing, whether it be one-dimensional, two-dimensional, four-dimensional, 15-dimensional. It doesn't matter. I think that time is just something that is a, our way of defining, as humans, sequence and duration. And because God experiences a sequence, I think God experiences time. It's just his time has an infinite, dura excuse me, infinite duration, everlasting to everlasting, in my opinion. I could be wrong. I was wrong on many things before. I'll be wrong on many things tomorrow. Does that somewhat answer your question? Yeah, I guess where I was really going with that is something you said before made me think, well, it made it sound like you were saying that God entered the world, which he did because Jesus is the Holy God. This is where it becomes difficult for me to describe what I'm trying to say. Okay. Uh, God, the Trinity, entered the world, and, uh, and that's why that's why God is within time. And so then, my question really was: Well, then, Jesus prayed to God while mm -hmm. he was on Earth, and if it was kind of all wrapped up together, then. That doesn't seem to make sense. Of course, maybe that's just one of those Trinity things that doesn't make sense. I don't know. <laughs> but if you say that God, in order to exist, is in time already, he I believe so, yes. Time Correct. He was already in time. That's what I believe, yes. I believe he entered humanity. He became human, and in the incarnation and the advent of him coming to this earth as part of creation, being man. But God has always been experiencing time, just infinite duration. Because time, like I said, time is not a thing, I believe. Time is not a thing, but just an attribute that describes sequence and duration. If there's ever sequence or duration, there's time, in my opinion. And so therefore, because God has always existed, what we call time, therefore, has always existed because God has always had sequence and duration. So the cat always eats the poison. If you open the box and saw it. <laughs> I believe that time always exists. And I believe that eternity, nowhere in scripture does it say that in eternity there is no time. That's, that's what kind of my point was from a lot of these scriptures and stuff. Is that some people have that belief and that's perfectly fine. That this is not a salvation issue. People disagree. We have different viewpoints, and we all still love God. We love Jesus. We want to be His followers. But in this topic, it's okay to disagree. I guess I just think that Scripture doesn't ever explain God being timeless. God doesn't. Scripture never gives examples of God being outside of time. Every example I've found and I've researched. I can't get in our final lesson. I'll kind of give more of a miniature little testimony, kind of explaining a little of my the way I came through all this. But in all of my research, trying to disprove what I'm telling you now, 
uh, it actually made me believe it because every instance I've been able to find in Scripture shows God being in time and not out of it. And he's not up in open it. And he's not, um, which one? All-powerful? Uh, yeah, because then he's a prisoner of time. No, because time isn't something that, like I said earlier, time is not something that can restrict God. It's just a nature of existence. It's just an attribute of existence. It doesn't restrict anybody. Like I'll say in a future lesson, kind of give a spoiler alert here, it's like saying, well, God's restricted because he can't create a four-sided triangle. No. A four-sided triangle is just logically impossible. It doesn't exist. Just because something doesn't exist, God not having that knowledge doesn't make him less of a God or diminish him in any way or restrict him in any way. It's just saying God doesn't know something that doesn't exist. That's all it's saying. Have you ever seen a pyramid? That's a very subjective comment. It's a four-sided triangle. Well, time is one thing that we can't put or we can't grasp. We, have, we can't put it under a microscope. Uh, we try to measure time, but that's very poor. And we think that 24 hours equal the day, but either the year if it's slowing down or speeding up. So we create what we call time at, at the end of the major period. Uh, does God actually live in time? I know he probably is there in the past, but is he physically standing there in the past if he could stand there? We don't know what that means to not be bound by time. Does he have knowledge of all time from the beginning of creation? Or is there a beginning of creation of time? You know, for that sequence. We don't know. Is he standing in tomorrow also? Or does he have knowledge of it? I just, to me, I don't think he cares much about time. He can see future. He knows the past. We know past, but we don't know future. I think we are much like him. That's, that would be my thoughts on time. That we can't grasp it. We're not going to know. We can't put it under the microscope. We have such limited knowledge of time that I think it's a subject that we cannot grasp. Okay. Anybody else? Okay, well, thank you, everyone. Like I said, next week, I'm going to talk about open theism. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the senior minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.